God speaks the Bible to us. We're having a look at Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 31. So good to be looking at it. And uh, good to ask God to help us uh, to focus and hear Him as we look at His Word, as we hear it preached, as we look to Him to tune our heads and hearts to what's real. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you speak this word to us by your Spirit. Thank you that these things that Jesus spoke then um, are things that are relevant to us now. And please do work by your Spirit that we would uh, be formed and shaped by these things you say. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Is anything more important than eternal life? And we just read about a man who thought his wealth was more important. Uh, for other people, there's something else that's more important. There, there's an area of life, there, there's something they hold on to. And if Jesus, if Jesus just left it alone, then they would follow him. But because it's so important to them, they don't listen. They think they're better off without him. Is there anything more important to you than eternal life? Two weeks ago in chapter 9, Jesus connected how we treat people we think are the least important with how we treat the Lord God who calls us to serve them. We honor and obey him by serving them. No one is beneath us. No one is unimportant. Now, the disciples are slow to learn. Uh, this, this, this passage we just read, it begins with people bringing their children to Jesus. They want the Lord Jesus to touch them and bless them. But the disciples are having none of it. They put on their security t-shirts and they rebuke the parents. <laughs> They're saying, what are you thinking? Don't you know how important Jesus is? He's busy with us. Do you think Jesus has time for your children? He has much more important things to do than bless children. Jesus is unimpressed by his self-appointed bodyguards. Well, more than unimpressed, he's indignant, he's annoyed, he's angry. Kids aren't unimportant, and he does have time for them. So Jesus says, verse 14, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Get out of the way and let them come. Because the kingdom of God belongs to people like them. Now Jesus isn't saying all children are in the kingdom. He's saying people who are like children are in the kingdom. Now no one is more like a child than a child. But Jesus doesn't say leave them be, they're fine. They're children. They need to come to him. Just as much as everybody else. So what is it it about them? How do adults need to be like children if they want to get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us to make bad guesses about what children are good at. Uh, People who have never met a real child might guess something like innocence or gentleness or humility or purity. (laughs) But no child is any of those. Yeah, A one-year-old doesn't need a lesson in how to grab hold of the toy they want and hold firmly no matter who else is crying in the room. 
A two-year-old doesn't need to be coached to expect everybody else to drop what they're doing when something happens and they want attention. There's no need to teach a three-year-old when they're on the way um, out to a party to make sure they get the biggest piece of cake. Or a four-year-old doesn't need to be helped to know that they can lie and get out of trouble when when they're getting caught in what they just did. People who've never met a real child who don't listen to what Jesus says might guess that what children are like is innocent, gentle, humble, and pure. Verse 15, Jesus speaks. He says, truly I say to you, which is basically his way of turning on bold, underlined, and italics for what he says next. He's emphasizing it. Here's the italics bit. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's what kids are good at. Kids are good at receiving. Uh, From their first feed until a few years in, all they do is just take, take, take. They don't have anything unless someone gives it to them. They trust the one who gives. uh, They take what's given. When a young child gets, well, they just take. Their next words aren't something like, but I didn't get you anything. They don't kind of wonder, can I pay for it somehow? They just take it. Every day they depend on the adults who care for them and feed them. Children and adults with that attitude towards God enter his kingdom. People who know they can't get themselves in. People who depend on their king. Only adults and children who trust God to give what he promises enter his kingdom. Children don't need to grow up to be more independent of God. Adults need to grow down to realize we are still absolutely dependent on God. To receive what he gives is free. No charge. And verse 16, the disciples watch as the children are brought to Jesus, the ones they tried to keep away, and they watch the children receiving the blessing. Then a man runs up and kneels in front of Jesus. He's eager. That's why he's running. He's convinced Jesus uh, sides with God, not Satan. He calls Jesus good. Uh, He's not here to trap Jesus. He's just here to learn. So he calls Jesus good teacher and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is his way of talking about entering the kingdom of God, about being saved. He's heard God's promise in the Old Testament scriptures that many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He knows some people will get eternal life, but he's not sure he's one of them. He asks the good teacher what to do. Jesus starts beginning to think about goodness. He says, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus isn't saying that, um, that God is good and that he isn't. The man's asking what good thing he needs to do to get eternal life. And Jesus is shifting the man's idea of what good is. What genuinely deserves to be called good. Well, who? God is. 
See, when someone says they're a good person or their friend is a good person, they don't usually mean they're perfect. They have their selfish moments. They they have thoughts they'd rather not share. There are interactions they'd rather not remember. Saying someone is a good person puts them somewhere between, well, doing more good than harm or doing much more good than harm. If that's what this man means when he calls Jesus good, well, he hasn't yet seen Jesus clearly. And he doesn't understand what true goodness is. So Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. It's not that he isn't good or that he isn't God. He's pushing the man to rethink what he means by good. True goodness is perfect goodness. Then he mentions six of the Ten Commandments God spoke. Uh, The ones about how to treat other people, verse 19, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Back to number five, honor your father and mother. Now, don't defraud here. It's his on-the-ground summary of the command about not coveting. And this man hears Jesus mention them, and he says that he's kept them from his youth. Never murdered anyone. Never slept with anyone who's married to someone else. Never stolen anything. Never given false evidence. Never deceived or tricked someone to get what they had. Never dishonored his parents. Never done any of those. Or maybe that he's never done any of those without then doing what the rest of the law says about sacrifice and cleansing and restitution. Somehow or other, he thinks in his head he's kept it all. In some ways, Jesus set him up to say so by mentioning only those external rule-keeping aspects of commands. Not mentioning the towards God stuff. Back in chapter 7, Jesus confronted some self-satisfied rule keepers uh, who added loopholes to avoid God's law and were absolutely convinced they were heirs of eternal life. They majored on ceremony but failed to realize it's what comes out of a person that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus said all these things come from within and they defile a person. But this man isn't self-satisfied. He already has the instinct that his morality isn't enough. Whatever he thinks he's done doesn't think he's done enough to inherit eternal life. Verse 21, Jesus loved him. He wants this man to follow him. He wants what's best for this man. But he doesn't lower the demands of discipleship to make it easy for him. He wouldn't be loving if he did. It wouldn't be loving if Jesus had hid the truth from him left him as he was. Jesus loves this moral man and tells him, verse 21, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The one thing he lacks is coming to Jesus and permanently following him. 
in order to follow Jesus, he'll need to go and sell everything and give to the poor. Then he'll have treasure in heaven. Then he'll have the inheritance that lasts into eternity. He asked what to do to get eternal life, and he's heard Jesus' answer. And his face falls. He arrived eagerly, but he leaves sorrowful. He arrived suspicious his morality didn't guarantee him eternal life. He arrived confident the good teacher would be his best guide. And he leaves with his question answered. He leaves sad because however much he wants to follow Jesus, he wants his wealth more. Mark didn't mention he was rich until just now. Verses 17 to 21, he's eager, he's sincere, he's moral. He sees Jesus as his best guide to to an eternal life. In verse 22, he is sad and rich and refusing to receive eternal life. Why doesn't Jesus simply say, follow me and bring your wealth with you? Why does he tell this man that it costs everything when he's just said that eternal life is God's gift? The disciples are obviously wondering because as the man leaves, Jesus says to them, verse 23, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. They thought everything was easier for the rich. When the rich want something, they buy it. They're never hungry enough to be tempted to steal to survive. They don't need to trick or cheat if they want something that someone else has. They just make a cash offer. They don't struggle to pay for sacrifices when they sin. They can give to the poor and have plenty left for themselves. The disciples thought everything was easier for the rich. So they're amazed to hear Jesus say that it's difficult for them to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says, verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. This time, it's just plain difficult. It's just plain difficult for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. Rich or poor, anywhere in between. But it's harder for the rich, verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, camels were the first century tray back utes. Animals used for to transport big loads. Been around Bible teaching for for long. If you've read kids' books uh, with this story in them, then you may well come across some interesting, shall we call them explanations, of what Jesus is talking about here. I've heard people say that there was a little gate in the city wall called the Eye of a Needle. Uh, They say that it was the only way to get into the city after the big gate was closed when it got dark. And that camels would come. And the only way they could get through is if if the load was taken off them, if they got down on their knees, and if they shuffled through on their knees, they'd get through that small door. Essentially, the illustration becomes it's easier to drive a tray back ute down a driveway where it only just fits than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. And when people tell that story, then they start talking about humility and praying. And there are two problems with it. The first is there's no evidence of any gate ever being called the eye of a needle by anyone 
until someone started telling that story about 800 years after Jesus. The second is that Jesus isn't aiming to illustrate difficult. He's illustrating impossible. He's talking about driving a literal tray back ute through the hole of a literal spare key. It's that impossible. If the disciples were amazed when they heard it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, their heads are spinning now. If it's like that for the people who have everything easy, who can be saved? If it's that impossible for people who have everything easier than the rest of us, well, what about the rest? Can anyone be saved? Jesus looks at them, verse 27, and says, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. See, we are hearing him right. They're hearing him right. He is talking about impossible. No one can do what needs to be done to deserve eternal life. Not even an eager, sincere, moral man with all the advantages of wealth on his side. At some reasons, at some levels, they're right to be thinking, if, if he can't do it, then nobody can. But it's only impossible from the earth up. No one can get themselves through. But God in heaven can bring anyone through. See, Jesus shifts the focus. He shifts the focus from who can get themselves into God's kingdom to who God can bring into his kingdom. Sorry. From who can get themselves into God's kingdom to God who brings people into his kingdom. That's right, isn't it? Trying to get in is as impossible as driving a literal tray back ute through the hole of a literal spare key. Being brought in by God relies on his effort, his effort, not yours. And nothing is impossible for him. He brings everyone who follows his son. That, that eager, sincere, moral, rich man, he didn't follow he wanted his wealth more. It was more important to him than eternal life. But the disciples have been following. They left everything. You, you read through Mark again, you'll see some of it. You see fishermen leaving their nets, uh, some of them leaving their father, their business. Uh, you see a tax collector leaving his tax books. All of them leaving everything to follow Jesus and to proclaim his gospel. You might also notice that Peter still has a house that he goes back to, uh, that some of them have access to a boat that they use. But it's not untrue when Peter says, we left everything to follow. Jesus says, verse 29, Truly I said, you remember bold italics underline, don't miss this. There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So everyone who follows Jesus leaves something, some things, many things. Everyone who honors Jesus can expect to be cancelled by someone. I find that a relationship isn't quite what it was before. Everyone who trusts Jesus as their best guide will let go 
of something their heart treasures. Everyone who serves his gospel will feel the cost somewhere. And no one will lose out when they do. Already in this life, they're a hundred times better off than if they'd refused to follow Jesus. They gain way more than they lose. Now, there are true things to say about the enormous blessing of, of hospitality among God's people, of finding new family in those who do the will of God, in knowing God as the one who provides more richly than endless fields. But Jesus isn't really sending us out to search for equivalents. He's simply saying no one loses out. We, we can trust him, it's true. We're already better off with the blessing of following him in this life. And those blessings come with persecutions. See that verse 30? Living for Christ and his gospel will attract opposition from people who oppose Christ. In the parable of the soils, Jesus pictured uh, people who hear hear the word, but don't keep following because of the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. And some other people who receive and rejoice when they first hear the gospel but fall away when tribulation or persecution come because of the gospel. Here Jesus is speaking to disciples who let go of the promises of whatever riches they had. And he's assuring them that they're already better off in this life as his followers He's warning them that the cost of following him isn't all up front. It's not all just about what's left in beginning to follow Jesus. He's saying they will be opposed by people who oppose Christ. I think that's why Jesus mentions persecutions as one of the, res- one of the results of living for him and for his gospel. It's so the disciples who have left everything and begun to follow Don't feel confused and disheartened and fall away when persecutions come. They're following the one whose loving message is that if anyone would come after him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. The cost of following Jesus keeps coming as long as life lasts. And no one loses out in this life. And beyond this life, there's eternal life. And that's the focus. There's more after. The eternal life the man asked about. The resurrection life, the life with God in heaven. The joy of being with Christ in his eternal kingdom. That's the focus, the life after. Then it will be obvious who made the better choice. Then, verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. That verse, verse 31, ties back to the disciples' argument about uh, which of them was the greatest. Uh, and to Jesus' answer when he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The rich man who just left Jesus was first in being served by all. That's how wealth works. You know, money is power to leave home with nothing to eat or drink To walk into a room and tell someone else to organize your breakfast and bring you a coffee and expect them to do it. 
It's the power to pick a place to live, to tell other people they can't live there because you've got exclusive use of it. It's the power to see a toy on a shelf and tell the owner you're taking it home and it's going to be yours from now on. Money is the power to be served. It's the power to get things done the way you want them to be done. And the man who walked away from Jesus was one of the most served people in Israel. First in this life. Jesus called him to be last of all. Jesus called him to put his wealth to work in serving others. To use it to be a blessing to the poor. To leave himself with no power to demand service. But fully able to be a servant of all in serving Christ and his Father in heaven. But he chose not to. He kept his treasure on earth. So he had no treasure in heaven and no place in God's kingdom. His disciples had left everything to follow Jesus. Last in this world. They have treasure in heaven and a place in God's kingdom. So why did Jesus tell the eager, moral, rich man to go sell all that he had and give to the poor? Well, because up to that moment, up to the moment Jesus told him to do it, the man thought God was the defining reality in his life. He thought he ordered his life around God and his commands. He thought he devoted himself to living to the living, true, and holy God. Jesus' command let the light in. That God was big, but his wealth was way bigger. The man faced the choice, and he chose to keep what he had in this world, and he lost eternal life. He stands a reminder to any any of those He stands as a reminder for any of those times when we're wondering, is following Jesus worth it? Well, yes. Far, far better to lose and gain a hundred times more in this life and eternal life in the world to come than to hold on to whatever seems important. Now, Jesus doesn't say the same things to everyone. He, hasn't, he doesn't command everyone to sell everything and give to the poor. But Jesus does say to everyone who wants to come after him that they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. Now, denying himself the benefits of wealth, it would have just been the beginning for that man. One aspect of denying himself and following Jesus in costly service to others as long as life lasted. Does that make sense? Denying yourself something is saying to yourself, you can't have that one thing. It's denying yourself something. Denying yourself is saying to yourself about everything, no, no. It's saying no to self and yes to Jesus. 
It's following Jesus in costly service to others. Whatever that means. It's following Jesus knowing it could mean anything and trusting him to fill in the details along the way. No longer living for ourselves and instead instead living for him who died for us and was raised again. I asked earlier, is there anything more important to you than eternal life? Now, if you're following Jesus, when you began, you said nothing is more important to you than eternal life. If you're following Jesus, when you started to follow, you say, yes, Jesus, you're Lord. It's like you signed a blank contract and handed it to Jesus and said, you fill in the details. The trouble is sometimes we kind of want to grab it back and just write a few little, a few little notes about what we'd rather he didn't touch. But if we're gripped by what Jesus says here about a hundredfold and treasure in heaven and eternal life, well, we won't be trying to get that contract back. We'll recognize that everything we are and everything we have is his and that it's a very good thing that it's his. As he fills in the details about work and social life and relationships and church and mission, it will feel costly, but make absolute sense to no longer use our time for ourselves and instead use it for him who died for us and was raised again. As he fills in, de- fills in details about family and work and opportunities to serve church family and opportunities to serve others, well, it will feel costly, but it will make absolute sense to no longer use our talents for ourselves, but for him who died for us and is raised again. As he fills in details about enjoying God's good gifts and paying what we owe and giving generously and sacrificially to the work of the gospel, well, it will make, it will feel costly, but it will make absolute sense to no longer use our treasure for ourselves, but for him who died for us and is raised again. If you're not following Jesus yet, all that might sound like a terrible idea. But look again at what Jesus says about it. It says, no one who feels the cost of living for his sake and for the gospel won't receive a hundred times more now in this time with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. The rich man who kept his wealth, he missed out. If you protect your life instead of following Jesus, you'll lose your life. If you follow him... And trust him with all of your life. Trust him that's a really good thing. Well, you'll gain everything. One more thing. The kingdom of God is given, not earned. That's why little children who just take, take, take are such a good illustration of how to receive it. These stories sit side by side so they help us see. That eternal life is God's free gift. He gives it. We don't earn it. There's nothing to do to earn it. But it costs everything. Because it changes everything. It changes who rules and decides what's best for us. And it's worth infinity times a hundred times everything. Eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the free gift of eternal life in your Son. 
We thank you that in meeting and following him and trusting you as our good father and Jesus as loving Lord, we find life which is truly life. Father, please grip us with the reality that following Jesus costs everything, that following him we've signed over everything to him. Please, as he fills in the details, as we read his word, as we hear it read and preached, as we talk it through with one another and get a clearer sight of what's truly best, please give us the humility before you, the trust in your son, that we would no longer live, no longer grasp our time, our talents, our treasure for ourselves, but rather spend ourselves our time, our talents, and treasure for him who died for us and is raised again. We ask it in him. Amen.